0: This event was recorded at the 2018 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good morning everyone. What a wonderful full house. How terrific to see that. Um, Welcome to one of the very first sessions of the Edinburgh International Book Festival 2018. Um, You made the right choice this morning to kick off your festival um, experience here with the absolutely fabulous Janice Galloway. (laughs) (laughs) So my name is Jenny Niven, I'm uh, Head of Literature at Creative Scotland um, and it's my absolute privilege to be here this morning. Um, This has been so far a wonderful year of centenary celebrations um, of the fabulous Muriel Spark as I'm sure lots of you are aware. Um, So across the year um, there's been a huge number of um, events and programmes and all sorts of activity to celebrate um, the work and the legacy of the amazing Muriel Spark. It's been the the Centenary programme has been led by Creative Scotland and the National Library of Scotland and kicked off in November with a, an absolutely stellar exhibition of um, Muriel Sparks' archive at the National Library, which is just terrific. I'm sure lots of you got along to see it. Um, so we moved into February with her actual centenary of our birth um, with an academic symp- symposium at Glasgow University, a fabulous event at the Usher Hall by the Edinburgh International Book Festival, which I'm sure lots of you attended and then over the last um, six months there's been some beautiful publishing including this gorgeous book which includes a foreword um, by Janice um, There's been events at all kinds of different book festivals around the country um, and further afield, including um, in New Zealand, uh, there was a new translation of The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie in Chinese. So it's just been absolutely extraordinary. Um, But we are far from done. Um, As you may have noticed, the book festival have done Muriel a fabulous honour of naming the George Street Theatre, the Spark Theatre this year, which is just great, Um, and have an extraordinary range of programming for you over the next two weeks almost daily um all kinds of talks and discussions and workshops um, around muriel's work including um, a staging of the play doctors of philosophy in partnership with the lyceum theater which is going to be really quite something um, but to kick off the series, we have um, Janice with us. Um, this year, Janice has been delving deep um, into Muriel's work. Um, she's a friend, and She was a friend and a, um, an admirer of Muriel's work when she was still um, with us, so I think we're going to get some really interesting insights this morning. Um, but Janice, in her own right, as you all know, um, is one of contemporary um, Scotland's leading writers, um, author of novels, poetry, libretta, all kinds of different forms, um, burst onto the scene with the trick is to keep breathing um, and it's really not stopped since. Uh, so I am myself, I'm very intrigued to hear um, what a kind of re-journey for her into Muriel Sparks this work this year um, has revealed. Um, so this morning we're gonna go through uh, Janice's presentation that she's gonna talk through a little bit um, and then we'll just see what happens. She's got a collection of the work um, and it would be really nice to hear how that's kind of informing your own work just at this point, Janice. And then we'll have um, some time for audience q and um, towards the end. Can I just say though, that when I was studying Scottish literature at university, two of the writers that made the most impact on me were Muriel Spark and Janice Galloway. So it's something of a, <laughs> of a privilege to be here today. Um, so before we kick off, please give another very warm welcome
1: to Janice Galloway. <laughs> Jenny? I think so. We'll soon see. (laughs) Um, Hi. I feel quite strange standing up because Jenny's still sitting down, but then she has a lot more rationale (laughs) than I have for having a sit-down at this stage. Um, I I did make a presentation. I'm not entirely sure why, and part of me is tempted just to leave it up there for you to read if you want. Um, Like, like, I mean, uh, see that this first phrase I wanted to put here, because the international reputation of Muriel's work, for a long time, she started at the same time as the angry young men. I want you to picture a room full of angry young men. (laughs) I want you to picture Muriel, who is 40, just breaching 40. She's reached uh, the age of 39, written her first novel. She has come from a quite extraordinary life, which I will detail ever so slightly here. She's not the... Odd how people get the notion of writers having a certain kind of background. That is still there, like a bad myth or perhaps a bad smell, using up far too much space. Uh, Muriel's route into writing was entirely self-elected. It was almost as though she couldn't help it, no matter how fey that sounds. It sounds like something she was going to do anyway. And this quotation from her work was one of the reactions she continually had. She's writing at the same time as the angry young men, folks, and what she got was, You're awfully cross about something. (laughs) Well, yes, (laughs) you know, what is there not to be cross about, actually? And of course, she picked up on some of that, but she changed the writing expected of women in general by saying I can write about any damn thing I want but you will be aware it is from a woman's point of view. Of course it is, look who's writing it. (laughs) That common senseness is what I love about Muriel, and what I still love very much about her. There is no horsing about, there is no pretending. Occasionally, as the narrator, she will jump into the story and say, look, before you do the next bit, you need to know this. And it's perfectly normal for her to do that. She was one of the original breakers of the page. She would actually step out of role where you're meant to be imagining that this story is somehow magically appearing on the page before you and say, somebody wrote this and it's me. Look, there's a thing I would like you to be aware of before we go any further. She does that. She is one of the most personable ever, but for some reason she had this name for being, I don't know, quite brazen. And I think it was because she was herself. At a time when a lot of female authors were hiding and pretending to be someone else, And chaps were actually taking up female roles to write about so-called female subjects. They were taking up female names and publishing as women if they had something to say in a womanly voice. These were strange times, and thank God they are gone. (laughs) Um, There's something a bit harsh about you, Flower. This is her parody of the kind of things she would hear often. You're not really womanly. To show her I was a woman, I tore up the pages of my novel and stuffed them into the waste paper basket, burst out crying and threw her out roughly and noisily. After that, I went to bed, folded with peace. I fell asleep. Muriel was always someone who was a survivor, and the reason will um, become fairly obvious. She was also acutely aware that in the time of her life, people wanted to classify more than anything else. What kind of thing do you write? I'm sure a lot, uh, many of you will go up and speak to authors after events. <laughs> Please don't ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, at the, the, look at these pictures of her as a child. What an angel. What a face full of joy. And yet at one point in her career, early on, she asked, am I a woman or an intellectual monster? Because some of the critiques she got back, especially from chaps, very worried that she she had come so far out of her box, started to complain that there was something mean-minded about her, that there was something that overlooked human suffering. I don't think so. I think what she thought human suffering was was different to, let's say, the newspaper standard of what newspaper suffering might be, or the novelistic stance of what simplistic stance of of what it might be. And she also said, beware of writers. Beware of me. You can see it ground her down a bit. But she wanted to know that when you started a book, you knew she was trouble. She was born in 1918 in Bruntsfield. I've only been to Bruntsfield once. (laughs) Do any of you live there? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Is it still a respectable place to live? (laughs) Absolutely, yeah, I'm being told. She attended James Gillespie School, which was just around the corner, and then did a... Uh, s- some people are surprised by this. She studied secretarial skills and worked in a department store. She didn't go to university. And see, when she, there's her explanation. Many girls who were studying at Edinburgh University were humanly rather dull and earnest, without any adult style or charm. <laughs> Whose side would you rather be on? The charmers or the people that do not have... Um, anything other than dullness and earnestness. It was her way. She was an optimist. I'm always astonished by people who think Muriel Spark is somehow pessimistic or dark. She was an optimist. And the situation was her parents couldn't afford to send her. So she made the very best of it. I'm getting a good thing. I'm astonished by how many times you will find that in the books. The narrators of the books will say, and this was a good thing after they've told you something frightful. Because they've worked out a way to make it apply to them. In 1937, oh, this is bad news, she'd be 19, she married somebody called Sidney Oswald Spark and went to live in South Rhodesia. Their son was born one year later. She extracted a promise from Sidney Oswald Spark that he would never ask her to do housework. (laughs) Smart. (laughs) He thought of something much more deadly. He attacked her with a gun at some stage, tried to shoot her, and Muriel never won to underestimate a threat. I think she saw life as it was exactly, very much so. Fled Rhodesia and had to be in hiding for four years because the war was on and she couldn't get a ship back to Blighty, as it were. She had to hide for four years, wondering if he would catch her that entire time. Her son living with a variety of different people and keeping moving so that his father couldn't find either of them. And eventually came back in 1944, leaving her son in uh, the country she had just come from to be brought back by a friend if she could find someone who could get a crossing of their own. Uh, When Robin came back, and he did come back, she sent him immediately to live with her parents so she could earn money. There wasn't brew money. There wasn't anything she could apply for to pay for the upkeep of her child. She was the kind of person who thought, I'm alone now. There's no husband. I have to earn my own money. What else would you do? She went to work for British (laughs) Intelligence. She went to work for British Intelligence. (laughs) Smart. Smart woman. Not a job for life, however. After one year, the war was finished and it was over. uh, And she went to work in the Poetry Society, which I imagine was very much like British intelligence (laughs) in some ways. And very much not in others. Um, She got into a fight with the all-male board. I wonder why that would be. She got into a fight, though. Actually, I know why that was. She she believed that abstract poetry existed. And they told her it didn't. And she said, do you want me to resign? And they said, oh, well, yes, all right. <laughs> and that was the end of that. Very thin-skinned at the time. She was the only woman in the Poetry Society, and they made her the secretary. And after that was done, after she crossed them by saying, there are more forms than you seem to think. Shouldn't we put this in? They got shot of her. She worked alongside Derek Stanford, writing critical studies and her own poetry, sending money for Robin's upkeep. And after leaving Stanford, she found her own flat. Now, the books start to intrude at this stage. She was addicted to dexedrine. She's living in a tiny, tiny flat. Uh, She starts to suffer from delusions. She has no money to live on. No one is giving her any money. She is not earning it. Until the most unlikely source of money is winning a short story competition. That's exactly what she did. And after that began a conversion to Catholicism with the priest in case she had been suffering because God was punishing her in some way. Interesting kind of connection she made there. And then she began writing a novel. And that's the start of everything, folks. Like most women writers, she started later than the chaps. There were a number of series of obstacles, if you like, to go through and ways to find out how on earth you do this entirely alone. And she was entirely alone. Her first novel was The Comforters, published in 1957, and it's about a young woman undergoing a a religious conversion who believes she's a character in a novel. The heroine of the novel eventually writes her own novel. Do you spot where that idea might have come from? (laughs) But it's not about Muriel. I have eventually wrote a book called This Is Not About Me, and it was about me as a child, but it wasn't about me. It's about the me I think exists. It's not necessarily about the me. I mean, it's not anything outside that. And Muriel Spark was one of the people who taught me that is in fact the case. You can't write about yourself uh, without prejudice. Of course you can't. Because you have the sensations of the people around you. And all her life, fragments of the story that she came from. In quick succession, she put them into Robinson, Memento Mori, The Ballad of Pickham Rye, The Bachelors, and finally, The Milch Cow, the prime of Miss Jean Brodie. She called it The Milch Cow because it kind of saved her life. She was a literary writer. She wasn't selling well. And then she wrote that one. And somebody wanted to turn it into a movie. And then it sold even more. So she kind of, uh, she moved around, uh, went to live in Italy eventually, went to live with Penelope Jardin because Penelope Jardin was very, very good at doing uh, accounts and keeping things in file for her. Uh, Miss Jardin was a painter and lived there until she died. Miss Jardin is still there, although she now lives more often in a house in America. Muriel Spark wrote 22 novels. Most of them were first draft. You think about that. Think about even writing your shopping list. Come on, you cross (laughs) things out, don't you? You cross things out. Not Muriel. They were mostly written in first draft, and her website for years did not put any date of death. I like that. Because, of course, she's not dead. Not really. She's not sleeping either. She's with us entirely and she's with us in those books. That's Mrs Spark and that's all I'm going to say about her to begin with.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Can you tell us, Janice, about your own experiences of meeting Muriel, either first through her work or actually literally in person?
1: Uh, I, I had a wonderful music teacher called Kenneth Hetherington. Uh, for as anyone in this room, it's remarkable how these people turn up. <laughs> if, if anyone here was taught by Ken Hetherington, you know exactly what I was talking about. He was the kind of man who could have inspired, uh, I don't know, he, he, he could have inspired a walrus to, want to learn music. Um, and this walrus turned up. And it was extraordinary. Just, uh, this is for you. You, can, you. You're allowed to do this thing. Don't let people tell you this is for a certain class of folks. In schools in 1970s, in the 1970s, uh, music lessons were free. Folks, do something to get this back. Please do something to get this back. Because who it worked most in favour for was kids like me who would never have encountered either much in the way of classical music except in a butter advert on the television, or would never have found someone who said, of course you can do that. Which one do you want? You want that one? The viola's bigger. Why don't you have that one? Don't have that little one. Everybody plays that. Why don't you have that one? And changed my life. That is one of the things that a good education does. Um, and I guess that was, it was Ken Hetherington, my music teacher, who gave me uh, the Prime of Miss Brody. <laughs> and I had no idea what it was about. I, I read it twice and I thought, I I don't understand this. I don't like it. All these girls are a pain in the neck. Um, This woman's clearly completely barking mad. She's off her head. You know that kind of 17, 18 year old way that you know everything. (laughs) I knew nothing. Of course I knew nothing. And I read it again when I was 30. It started to make sense. We were talking about this earlier on. You keep reading Muriel. Even if all you ever read is the one book and read it several times she will morph into you at the age you are when you're reading it. It's an extraordinary skill, and I think quite... It's not utterly unique, but it's one of these things that is slightly unique. Somehow there are layers... And layers and layers that you get into the older you become and the more experience you have. Mm. That was quite a long answer for short question.
0: That's all right, but I've still got the other half of it. When <laughs> did you first
1: meet her, and what was that? Oh jings! Um, I was uh, invited to interview Muriel Spark for what was then called the Glasgow Herald. It's now called the Herald, isn't it? Why did they do that? What's no, that? <laughs> Is that posher? A Herald. It just brings you stuff and it doesn't come from a place at all. It comes (laughs) from outer space. Anyway, it it was called the Glasgow Herald at the time and uh, I jumped at it. It was Pat Kane, Mm -hmm. who was in charge of it, and I was delighted. He said, we want a woman. And uh, I said, oh, I can do that. And so I, I went and found her, and it was the most extraordinary thing. She walked into the room that I was waiting in with four sound people. And the sound equipment set up to capture the conversation, so I could take it away and write the article afterwards. And she walked in in a a full-length evening gown, uh, covered in sparkly stuff, wearing great big diamond earrings. I assume they were diamond; they might well have been diamonds. And she was five foot two and not small at all. And I remember standing up and realising I was almost a head taller and this giant of literature that I had found when I was young. And I was bowled over by her. She did not want to talk about herself. She wanted to talk about the Monica Lewinsky scandal. (laughs) So that was where we started. And where we ended up was all over the place. I don't think we talked a single thing about her writing life because she said, oh, it's boring, I've done all that. (laughs) Very down to earth. I admired her hugely. For that down to earthness and for managing to be herself in what must have been a very male dominated world when she first started out, and a world in which she received much criticism for writing about women's lives as though these were interesting.
0: I'm not surprised to hear that she delves straight into the politics of the day, though, because you get that sense from all of her work that she's always aware of the kind of contemporary political backdrop and kind of social context that she's writing in that ferocious intellect that just comes through in all of our work was she intimidating in that way
1: not not at all it was it it was like having a cup of tea I'm I'm, I'll talk to anybody I shouldn't really tell you that but I mean I I will talk to anybody and I hang out at bus stops deliberately To have people to speak to because I've got a very lonely job you know it's me in a typewriter or these days it's me in a computer and it's quite boring and you know, to go out and just chat to people you learn extraordinary things every single time it's very seldom that you just get stuff like I've just been buying cornflakes you do get a bit of that but there is more stuff besides and um we we just fell into conversation and it was Mm. like talking to someone you'd known for years there was no show about her there was no big wiggery about her I mean I I heard that she was uh, I mean I heard from reliable people that she was a lot more prickly when she was younger but why Mm. wouldn't she be she was moving in circles that she'd never moved in before and she was fairly concerned as to how she would be received Uh, by that time in her life she was already she was 80 when I met her and we had uh, huge fun we had the best laugh ever and I, I still—I didn't bring it but I, I have the book she, she signed for me and it just said try to keep writing they will put you off if they can laughter That speaks to so
0: many of the barriers that she must have faced during her career though, whether it was around her domestic situation or around her being the first woman at each turn or that resistance to classification when everybody was trying to put her into the box of you are this type of writer. How did she sit in relation to Scottish writing given that she travelled internationally and she had this really wide kind of widely roaming lens? Do you see her as a Scottish writer? Does that matter?
1: It it, it doesn't matter over much, but uh, uh, geographically and topographically and in terms of your birth certificate, yes, she's she's a writer from Scotland. I think what's uplifting about that is that, uh, certainly when I was a teacher, there were very few women I could point to uh, who were that. Um, And a lot of... Funny thing, I used to say this casually... And I think it's less true now, at least I hope it's less true now. But women get to die once. Once you've gone, your books disappear. Mm. Um, they just they just vanish as though they have never been there unless you can make lots and lots of money with them for someone or unless these books themselves, even without you, will make that money. In general, Litvick as it used to be known, lit- literary fiction doesn't sell as well as a lot of other things, and therefore it tends to die out far quicker unless it's won a big prize or something. Um, so it was, a, it was an extraordinary thing to find so few women to read when I was growing up. And there was Jessie Kesson. For those of you who have never read any Jessie Kesson, a remarkable woman who was uh, the daughter of a, a Highland prostitute. It sounds like a... It sounds almost comedic in a strange way. You could make a fascinating film about it, and people did. And she wrote about being reared with no, by, by no one, more or less, while mum was doing all the work just to keep body and soul together, and about the poverty and about the fact that, that she had no friends, because nobody would, nobody's kids were allowed to speak to her. The second book is about someone who doesn't fit in in their society and who is having an affair with a soldier. And the third one, again, is about those times. I think she's a wonderful writer. If you haven't heard of her, her name is Jessie Kesson, and her books have been republished because I kept annoying the publisher (laughs) until they republished them. There are only three, you can get the whole collection. And then I found that Muriel was there. There were a lot of English women writers I could turn to, but I wanted Scottish women, partly because I hoped something of my experience might be there. I think when you're young, it's something that means a great deal to you, when something of your own experience is reflected back, and I wanted to find these women. Uh, there were about Elspeth Davy, whom I met, and who was, who was charming to me, but I think th- those were the only ones I knew. Mm. And then there was Liz. It's
0: a whole new chapter, yeah. isn't
1: it? <laughs> the, um, I think that...
0: That thing of women disappearing as soon as they die, that was one of the kind of huge driving impetuses for this whole centenary programme to really restore Muriel back to her rightful place as one of these great not just Scottish writers, but international voices yeah. in literature. But it's quite interesting as you sort of pour back through the way that she kind of archived her own in life mm-hmm. and her in, her kind of drive to record absolutely everything. And if you do poke around in the archives in the National Library, it's extraordinary. Every single receipt and every and I've had the privilege of being at her house in Tuscany, and the house is absolutely the same. It's just folder after folder of the most incredibly catalog details, receipts, invoices footnotes um, commentary, if she's been reviewed then there's sort of text in the margin of what she then thinks of the reviewer it was absolutely (laughs) amazing and you wonder what she thought at the time about what her legacy would be and what, you know, what was how she would be viewed after her death and I think it was quite important to her
1: I get that sense. Well, I think, I think what, what, what she'd be expecting it was what, what's to disappear. Mm. And she act, she put active... There, there was something of the seer about Muriel. Something that the, the kind of slightly barmy seer. And for those of you who haven't read the first book, The Comforters, it's about a young writer. Well, I just, I just mentioned it there. It's clearly based on her life, as though your book could be based on anything else. <laughs> Whose eyes do you see through? You know, you can be writing about being a worm on the planet moron, but it's still you (laughs) because you're making that and you're making that place. And there was this long tradition of the muse that somehow a voice spoke to you from outer space. That doesn't really happen. If you've been waiting for that, what you need to do is just write down stuff (laughs) of your own. As it comes into your head, the way everybody does and it makes uh, the whole job of writing less rarefied. Most people can do it. Fewer people can do it well. Even fewer people can do it really screamingly well. There are some works of uh, murials, for example, that don't kick as much ass, as it were, as, uh, as, as some of the others. Now, of course, that is to be expected. Another reader would probably reverse the ones I like into the ones they don't like, and the other way, that's fine. That it's about eclecticism. It's about giving what you have to give without fear or favor. What happens will be what happens, and that's part of the risk she took. And that she took it so bravely, Mm -hmm. I think was an enormous example. Some people will like some of the stuff, some people won't like all of the stuff, and when a new book comes out, as many people will probably load it, as love it. And that's just how it is. Mm. That's part of the deal. Um, And that attitude, you can't control it. It's in almost every book. Uh, You probably know that she converted to Catholicism. Uh, Well, just talking about it very, very briefly, she converted to Catholicism, saying, if you're going to be a Christian, you might as well go the whole hall. <laughs> this is someone who comes from a Jewish background. And she, uh, the, uh, the, the Kamberg name completely vanished. She held on to spark because it was the only part of her husband she liked. <laughs> and you can already see that sly wit making a survivor. Every time something terrible happens, how can I make it work? me mm-hmm. and it was that example I had seen so little of it the survivor, the person who holds on and the more you read of Muriel the more you will find other women in the books doing these things other women surviving by holding on you don't always love them, you don't always think oh I'd love to bring her round for a cup of tea at my house but you do think, jeez, that's a strong woman I admire that and that's more important I think in the long run Here, here. <laughs>
0: So this year you have been delving back into a lot of the work, but with the kind of, um, I guess, the voices of Muriel Spark yeah. being your kind of guiding influence. Can you tell us a bit about that, about, your, about
1: um, what you've been
0: doing with Muriel this year?
1: Sure. Well, what I've been doing with Muriel's kind of grandiose. What I've been doing is uh, talking to a lot of the, um, what used to be called the Scottish Arts Council and it's now created... <laughs> Creative Scotland, <laughs> so shiny, Creative Scotland, um, uh, gave me some money, g- gave me over a thousand pounds, believe it or not, to go away and research Muriel and write some shows for people in schools, write some for people who, who came along like this uh, during this year and it was a great opportunity to get out the house because I don't much and a lot of the people I was speaking to, some teachers had the, had the idea that it might be useful in their subject and the the best one were the art school the art school brought some kids along because they'd been talking about Muriel Spark and all they seemed to know was well she left her wee boy, didn't she? that was never nice (laughs) and I've talked to them about life a bit um, because life is important and sometimes it makes some of your decisions difficult to understand to a certain kind of outsider and sometimes it doesn't And after we'd been talking, especially after I'd had a firm talk to the girls, um, the boys all kind of switched off because they'd had enough of this woman thing. They went out during the coffee break, except one who came right to the front and sat sat next to me. I'm not sure if that was for protection or what that was for. (laughs) And uh, we just talked woman to woman in the thing, just about what you can write about and what you can't. And they were delightful. They they made new covers for all the books, emphasising, how do you do a whole story in a book cover? How do you know what to put there that will make someone pick it up? And that meant they had to read it and they had to decode it. It was a very clever way of getting Mm. them to read books. And... um, I was, I was invited to that and was bowled over by the quality of the work, and almost all of the, the, the girls who had submitted things came over and said, you know, I really liked it after that. You have to read more than one, don't you? <laughs> and they'd been swapping books, and yes, you do have to read more than one. She's extremely outspoken. If that's not your cup of tea, keep away. By all means, buy the Sunday Post. <laughs>
0: That actually developed into an enormous project and five different art schools in Scotland um, got behind it and had students design covers um, for all 22 of the novels and some of the work is absolutely mind-blowing. It's so brilliant. Um, There's a website, murielspark100.com, that that covers a whole lot of the stuff that has been produced this year Um, and you can find some of those images there if you're interested to have a look. Um, The support that Creative Scotland gave Janice was also there was another 11 writers, musicians, artists who were supported this year to interpret and explore Muriel's work in new ways that were relevant. Um, to them and some of that has just come into fruition now too and some of that is on the website but it's amazing it's like pieces from Loitering with, um, with Intent set to Jazz Quartet um, and it's poetry about Israel and about the West Bank but through the lens of Muriel Sparks' fiction, it's absolutely mind-blowing the ways, the different kind of creative influence that she's able to have and all these different types of writers and works so if you're interested you can see some of that, um, that online but the, the voice was the kind of guiding factor for you and all of this, Janice, wasn't it? And we talked a little bit before um, about some of the voices that come through in some of these texts that
1: you've picked out.
0: Uh Um, Can you talk a little bit about Muriel's versatility in that way and the the different voices that she uses?
1: Uh, Well, again, because there there is... (coughs) This is going to sound strange. um, There is no real artifice in the writing. (laughs) At the same time, of course, any art form is entirely artifice. It's something that you generate out of thin air. You make it out of nothing. It's not like a cake. You can see its root to birthing. You can see how it comes about. It's ideas made into some kind of flesh that you can take and make into your own thing using your own brain. It's an extraordinary thing the Written art in particular and theatre, and uh, basically all sorts of art do this magical thing where they take a part of someone's thinking and the flow of someone's mind and they offer it out to someone else to take it up into whatever flow of their mind can accept it and turn it into something personal for themselves. And having done that, um, I remember being kind of overwhelmed by the, the amount of direct honesty you would need. And a lot of Muriel's characters, people think, are Muriel. They're not. They're Muriel's characters. Come on, throw up. (laughs) Um, It's not Muriel. This is her making stuff up for a living. It's what you do. If there's anybody in the audience who's ever gone up to an author and said, is that book about you? Don't, really. (laughs) No.
0: You've been told.
1: (laughs) And this is from Loitering with Intent. One, it's very short. One day in the middle of the 20th century, I sat in an old graveyard which had not yet been demolished in the Kensington area of London when a young policeman stepped off the path and came over to me. He was shy and smiling. He might have been coming over the grass to ask me for a game of tennis. He only wanted to know what I was doing but plainly didn't like ask. I told him I was writing a poem and offered him a sandwich, which he refused because because he had just had his dinner. He stopped to talk a while, then he said goodbye. The grave seemed to be very old, and he wished me good luck and said it was nice to speak to somebody. This was the last day of a whole chunk of my life, but I didn't know at the time I was simply sitting on a stone slab of some Victorian grave, writing while the sun lasted. The darkness and the lightness you immediately get in there is the only warning you get before the story kicks in. And it's written by an amazingly light-hearted character who makes the best of everything, despite the fact that the world is going to hell in a (laughs) handcart. All round about her. Um, Astonishing book. And what I wanted to do there was merely give you the flavour of how she kicks into things, how she sets off. She can do all sorts of voices too. May I do another?
0: Please do, Yeah.
1: This is from the Ballad of Peckham Rye. If you've never read this, this is one of my absolute favourites. It's about a man called Dougal Douglas. And Dougal is a, a kind of Scotsman on the make hanging about in London, looking for a place to employ him, although he really can't do anything. And he keeps turning up to interviews and eventually he gets to, um, gets to a factory where he thinks, oh, this will be easy, it's all women in there. I will float to the top. I am the cream. And of course, something is waiting to get him, but it's debatable whether it ever does. Google kind of comes out of it very well in a strange way. Read it. This is an absolutely remarkable book, one of my favourites. And this is how it starts. Uh, Peckham Rye is a working-class suburb in London. Get away from me, you dirty swine, she said. There's a dirty swine in every man, he said. Showing your face, she said. Now, Mavis. She was seen to slam the door in his face, and he to press the bell, and she to open the door again. I want a word with Dixie, he said. Mavis, be reasonable. My daughter, Mavis said, is not in and she slammed the door in his face. At the same time, he appeared to consider the encounter satisfactory. He got into his little Fiat and drove away along the grove and up to the common where he parked outside the Rye Hotel. Here he lit a cigarette, got out, and entered a saloon bar. Three men of retired age at the far end turned from the television and regarded him. One of them nudged his friend. A woman put her hand to her chin, And turned to her companion with a look. His name was Humphrey Place. He was that fellow that walked out of his wedding only a few weeks ago. He walked across the white horse and drank one bitter. Then he visited the morning star and the heat in arms and he finished up at the harbinger. The pub door opened and Trevor Lomas walked in. Trevor was seen to approach Humphrey and hit him on the mouth. The The barmaid said, outside! wouldn't have happened if Dougal Douglas hadn't come here, a woman remarked. He was standing at the altar with Trevor, the best man behind, and Dixie came up the aisle on the arm of Arthur Crewe, her stepfather. There must have been 30 guests in the church. Arthur Crewe was reported in the papers next day as having said, I had a feeling it wasn't going to work. At the time he stepped up the aisle with Dixie, tall in her flounces, eyes dark and open and with a little trace around the nose of a cold. She had said, keep away from me, you'll catch my cold, Humphrey. Bad enough me having a cold for the wedding. But he said, I want to catch your cold. I like to think of the germs up in from you to me. I know where you got that disgusting idea from. You got that from Dougal Douglas. Well, I'm glad he's gone and there won't be him at the wedding to worry about in case he starts showing off the lumps on his head or something. (laughs) There's something wrong with him. I like Dougal, Humphrey said. Here they were, kneeling at the altar. The vicar was reading from a prayer book. Dixie took out a lace handkerchief and patted her nose. Humphrey noticed a whiff of scent. The vicar said to Humphrey, Wilt thou have this woman to thy wedded wife? And Humphrey said, No. <laughs> to be quite frank, I won't. <laughs> then he got to his feet and walked straight up the aisle. The guests in the pews rustled as if they were all women. Humphrey got to the floor into his Fiat and drove off by himself to Folkestone. It was here they planned to spend their honeymoon. He went into six pubs, then stayed at the hotel on the front in the double room they had booked and paid double without supplying explanations to the peering, muttering management. <laughs> Wouldn't have happened if Dougal Douglas hadn't come here. <laughs>
0: Wonderful. I think we have time for some audience Q&A. Um, I believe there's a mic roaming somewhere, so if we just wait until the lights come up. Okay, the first lady is there in the middle with her hand up. If you can just wait for the mic, please. I've had a lifelong admiration of Muriel, love her books, love yours too. Can you tell me that in her old age, was she left with any regrets? And if so,
1: what were they? Dear Lord, you would need to ask Muriel that and she wouldn't give you an answer, probably. Um, I, I think everything she thought and her modus operandi, the way she lived her life, was trying to make the best of everything. In other words, the rational approach. Sometimes people accuse Muriel's, but, oh, jeez, I could go on all day. Like the list of people who in her own lifetime said, she's awfully dark, isn't she? I mean, it's not very... Womanly, if you remember the things she put into her own writing. You know, we want to hear about uh, picking flowers and stuff. I'm not quite sure what they want to hear about, but something that was about women that doesn't appear to be about women's lives, like difficult decisions, like um, abortion, like um, ending up living alone through no fault of your own, like being misunderstood, the whole thing, and like being sacked for no reason. And she was one of the ones who put that there. And I think that was the result of deciding to be constructive. Also, the priest who helped with her uh, transition to Catholicism said he had never met anyone like her and she was the most unique Catholic he had ever (laughs) ever met, as you can imagine. If Muriel didn't like something, it was out. Just to hell with it. And um, she very much made her own way and her own path in life and made that what God wanted. <laughs> and I think what she did was exactly that with her life. Whatever happened to her, she turned into, it was for the best. The worst period of her life, I think, was uh, with uh, Sidney Oswald Spark. I don't think she knew what to do with that. It must have been a terrible shock at the age of 19. And the, the other thing that I think was very difficult for, for her was going to America after Uh, She earned some money. She went to America because it was becoming difficult to live at home. She was finding the press very difficult. She was finding critique of the way she worked very difficult and thought, I'll go somewhere where they don't know me. But of course, they got to know her very quickly. And she just wasn't happy there. She couldn't really write. It's the only place it took her three years to write a novel. Um, Everywhere else, she had written one in a matter of months. Here, it took her a long time. So then she went to Italy and I don't think she looked back About anything. Life is short. That's really the only slogan. If Muriel had one slogan on a t shirt, it was Life is short. Thank you. The the way that she used um,
0: Catholicism and things, and, and a lot of things in her life to her own advantage, is. It's so telling, and Penny told me a story that, um, not a story, it's the truth, that that when, as you said, a lot of her novels were written almost in first draft form. And she would mull, and she would think about them, and she would plot them, and she'd literally write them in her head before she wrote them down. And then her and Penny would check into one of the convents around the area of Tuscany where they lived... And she would basically use that as the premises. And she would sit down, lock herself in, and just write for three weeks, and out would come one of these novels. And Penny said they did that repeatedly that was and she they just kind of using the convent and the utility of that to just facilitate that get the book done and then that was that was that, her done. That, <laughs> that is really, in, that's
1: really interesting no. because that, that was how she wrote her first book she was staying in this dingy wee flat and it was full of crap it was full of terrible books but she, she was scared to throw them away because she wasn't sure she could ever afford new ones and she just kept everything in the flat and couldn't breathe in it and she went to the church there you go. To right, to right. This was clearly a life pattern. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's where she made the enormous affinity she made with the Christian religion. Well, with a very particular version of the Christian religion would be would be doing that. And I had no idea she did that later in life too. I love that's to think crazy. of that
0: though. The nuns all just kind of catering for her and making sure everything's in place while she just gets whatever novel it is, out and, and off she goes on to the next you thing. You have such Amazing. a generous
1: <laughs> mind. I always imagine the nuns keeping out the way. <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> it's probably more likely.
0: <laughs> Should we take another question? There's probably lots more. Just the chap on the end here. Thanks.
2: You mentioned that your view of the prime of Miss Jean Brodie has changed over the mm-hmm. years. Uh-huh. I, I'm interested to know what you think about it now. For example, what do you think about the action by Sandy towards the end of the novel? Sandy is one of Jean Brodie's girls who makes a dramatic intervention which has a profound effect on the future life of Jean Brodie. And as a reader, you're kind of forced to sympathise with Sandy or with Jean Brodie. What's, what's your view of that situation?
1: Can, can I just ask if you, if, you, if you use the verb forced? Forced? I did. Are you sure? <laughs>
2: I'm thinking about it now.
1: Nobody's nobody's forcing you. That, that's the extraordinary thing we do with literature. It's as though some, somebody is bending your arm to make you think a certain way. That's you, sir. It's, that's a bit of your brain.
2: Let, let me put it in a different way then. <laughs> My friend took one view of the situation and I took another view of the situation.
0: It's a diplomat.
2: <laughs> and that led to an interesting discussion.
1: Uh, yeah, well, it, uh, well, you do. You, you uh, with luck, know more as you get older. And if you don't know more, maybe that's too optimistic, you know different and you forget a lot. <laughs> you know, the head moves around, it becomes a different thing, it absorbs different kinds of knowledge. And you will remember, well, certainly if you're me, you will remember all sorts of things from your childhood. You had forgotten entirely. So you get as much as you lose. But the stuff you tend to get is stuff that you thought was over and done with, and it's not. Not over and done with you yet. You're still mulling those things from an age where you couldn't make rational decisions, and there's a bit of you still wants to, and you've taken those ideas in. Um, I i think um, I don't think Muriel has, has an opinion either way about what you do. Again, it just comes to... Look at what people do. Look what fools people are. If you think you're in charge of something, at some point you're going to get a hard knock. And a hard knock is what Jean Brody gets. It's remarkable how many people think that Jean is somehow the protege of Muriel. You know, that she's kind of a blessed teacher. She's awful. She's awful. She, sends a, she happily watches. A 17-year-old, 18-year-old girl march off to a war and know so little about it that she joins the wrong side. Which is awful. You laugh to begin with and then you think, oh my God, imagine that happening in real life. You, You can't really imagine that what you're giving people is always going to be beneficial. And I think what the picture of Jean is, it's a very affectionate picture of a very solipsistic woman. She sees the world in a certain way and she wants to share that. And that does make a good teacher, but not for the kids who can't think that way, whose idea of life is much more simplistic than the one you're giving them. It doesn't give them a lot of leeway to be someone else. There's no answer in it as to, is Jean a good teacher? Yes, she is. And at the same time, for some, she's not. There are no clean-cut answers, I think, with Muriel. It's just, look at the mess people can get into, (laughs) is one of the things she's dealing with. Does that help at all?
0: (laughs) (laughs) We've probably got time for two more. The chap in the pink and then the person just in front, thanks. Hi, um, I'm interested in Muriel's conversion to Catholicism. I am a Spanish, and I think everyone in Spain tries to escape from the Catholic Church. And I think she's the only person I know who joined the Catholic <laughs> Church. So I'm, I'm curious about
1: it. Uh, well, part, partly to do with safety in numbers, I think. You know, that there's, a, there's a lot of people... I mean, she was also asking why she headed in that direction. You would need to ask Mrs. Spark, and good luck getting an answer. <laughs> I think uh, she just... Um, I think she wanted a something to turn to when she needed protection. She had no husband anymore. Her family had hardly any touch with her. Her son took against her at one stage in his life and actually tried to sue her. Um, she had a lot of bad luck with people. And a lot of the time she was shut in a room, so no wonder. She was shut in a room by herself. I do it too, doesn't make you many friends. That's why doing this, doing this is a lifeline, folks. You know what I mean? There are people, there are people out there and you get to meet them fleetingly. And if you're very lucky, they are kind and they are interested and they will tell you something interesting when you speak to them later. Um, but I think she had a very occluded life. I think she lived very singly and she, she, she did dinner parties and all that stuff. But I've never yet been at a dinner party. If there's anybody's dinner party that I've been to is here. This is not an insult, really. This is just, I've, I've never been at a dinner party where I've learned something that was really changing the course of my life. You know, just uh, what, what we thought of the beef <laughs> and things. You know, it's small talk. It's, it's that kind of thing. So she was, all the high thinking was done alone. And I imagine that was what religion gave her. She had a something with her. In the very first book, The Comforters, which I mentioned, there is a talking typewriter. So if you haven't read it, maybe that... Yes, now. Maybe it's the answer. So let's hope so. <laughs> okay.
0: Can we have one just from the lady in front of you there? Thanks. My question was really much the same, but I just thought, thought that it, I find it curious that she would join an institution which you think she would find very confining. But presumably it was all on her terms, so maybe that. Yeah.
1: Muriel did, know, Muriel did, did nothing that was more not about her the term.
0: priest. Do we know any more about the priest who was responsible for her transition?
1: This 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 could be an ideal pursuit for you. <laughs> I hasten to add that I'm not a Catholic. I'm not even a Christian. I I, I know absolutely nothing about this priest, but he must have been long-suffering and very tolerant. (laughs) And I would imagine used to being told, no, that was a load of nonsense, go away. Um, I I think he probably admired her just for her certitude and her um, need for her own self-satisfaction to be someone who worked out what did life mean to her how, was it, how should she try to live it? And how should she work to best advantage to offer something before she disappeared? She was acutely aware mm-hmm. of death. It's one of the things she, she talked about a great deal. But there's a quotation I will probably get wrong where she said, um, I am surprised by the number of people who think I will be afraid of death. Now I am 86. Why would I be afraid of death? if you do not make a friend of it then you would worry I have been making a friend of it for years and I think that's true know what your limitations are know what you can and can't do and do something useful because one day you won't be able to I think it's that simple it really is
0: I think we will take that moment to <laughs> wrap things up thank you so much Janice that was thank you thank you Thank you, thank you so much. So please. (laughs) It won't stop please join us in the bookshop um, where Janice will be signing copies of her own work. Um, there's also so Janice's um, work is available for, for sale as are all 22 now of the um, fabulous reprints of um, Muriel's novels and this lovely compendium of her short stories and do attend some of the other Muriel events that are programmed um, throughout the festival. Thank you all for coming this morning and thanks again Janice.